You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, uh, we're going to do something a little bit unorthodox this week. Well, not unorthodox in the sense that we've never done it. No, we've done it before, but uh, we've never done it without uh, previously announcing it to the people at home. Okay. So that in and of itself is a little unorthodox in addition sneak attack is what you're saying it's a, it's a goddamn sneak attack you're right uh just crept up on you from behind blow now you land there with all types of blood coming out your head god which uh compounds the already unorthodox nature of this podcast coming out on a tuesday since yesterday was president's day the sexiest of all holidays yeah we always get hyped up for that one so uh we had to take that off i spent the day holding a baby oh and How I, lovely. I assume that you spent the day involved in your annual President's Day orgy. Yeah. Well, it was, let's just say it was muted this year. We, there's not as much glee this President's Day. Let's say that. Uh, you know, it was a sad kind of orgy. In the past on the show, when we've recorded on President's Day, I've done presidential facts throughout the show. Remember that? I do not recall that at all. It's always a big hit with you specifically that I do that. Are you... Are you saying that there will be no presidential facts this time? Because well, I would love it if that's what you're saying. It's the day after President's Day, mm-hmm. so I don't know if it's really apropos. Yeah. If, I don't know if it's germane. Let's say it's not germane. Might be a little bit too granular. Well, now it's getting weird. So what are we going to do for this week, Ben? What's, what's different about this, this week's show? Well, people who have been listening to this podcast for a while will recognize the form of the All Questions Considered show. Which means that basically we got a bunch of interesting listener mail, probably through all of it, including the entire front line of Arsenal. Uh, but with a lot of stuff to consider, you know, nothing huge that deserves to be a central focal point this week. We thought, all right, we'll snatch topics from all over the place with all kinds of your interesting, thoughtful, sometimes just weird as shit emails. And uh, that's how we'll spend our hour. Because we're coming out of a weekend where there are a lot of different topics that, that beg for our attention. Uh, with Bellator 194 and the UFC fight night, Donald Cerrone against Yancey Medeiros. Uh, and on top of that, uh, some, some percolating storylines out there that we feel like we want to touch on. So we're going to do our best to get through all of that uh, today. And we're going to do it by reading your emails. Ben, did you know that John Adams and Thomas Jefferson Jesus Christ. visited Shakespeare's home in Stratford-upon-Avon, and while they were there, they chipped off a piece of one of Shakespeare's chairs and kept it as a souvenir? You're making that up. You made that up right now. This episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast is once again brought to you in part by Fulton and Rourke, purveyors of high-quality grooming products built specifically for the way guys operate. Based in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, Fulton & Rourke began with a series of solid colognes designed to integrate seamlessly into everyday life. Since then, they've added to their lineup with items like the two-for-one body wash and shampoo, their amazing bar soap, and even the military spec dop kits, which, by the way, we just gave away to a couple of lucky Breakfast of Champions subscribers stuffed with great Fulton & Rourke stuff. 
Everything Fulton & Rourke makes is engineered with an eye on the highest quality and extreme functionality. They understand your life, so they design everything they make to go where you go, including use at home, on the road, at the gym, even at the office. Right now, we recommend trying out their awesome face wash, which is newly back in stock and better than ever with vitamin E tea tree extract. You can also try out that 2-in-1 shampoo and body wash Chad just told you about, which is formulated using rosemary extract, vitamin B5, and caffeine to give it a uniquely invigorating fragrance, while leaving your hair and skin looking and feeling good long after you stepped out of the shower. Every Fulton & Rourke product that we tell you about is stuff I use myself. You could go upstairs right now and look into my shower, not that you'd want to, and find the shampoo and the body wash and the face wash all sitting there right on my shelf. I used them this morning and every morning, and they are both super rad. All of it is easy to get into your hot little hands. Just go to FultonAndRourke.com, load up your cart with great stuff, and be sure to use our exclusive promo code CME at checkout to get 15% off your first order. That's FultonAndRourke.com. You know, one thing we didn't mention yet is that we hit our goal with the CME drinking challenge, and we held a poll to see which Pride event we are going to watch for our CME drinking challenge. And the result is we're watching Pride Final Conflict 2005. I think that that's a good choice. Uh, and I was surprised by the polling, frankly, because it, Pride 33 jumped out to a, uh, a commanding early lead, which I thought was a strange choice, uh, for our audience. And I assume only because of the involvement of Nick Diaz. Well, did that sprint out to the early lead? You know, that one also has that Dan Henderson, uh, Vanderlei Silva fight. It does. The famous, you can go to my after party at the Palms or you can go to Vanderlei's at the hospital. Uh, but yeah, I think that's 90% Nick, D- Nick Diaz going out there and, and go-going uh, Takanori Gomi and then insist on being put on the cover of a magazine or something. Fuck. But then I think when people realize like, hey, we want the full Pride experience. We got to be in Saitama Super Arena, baby. You can't have the the one in Vegas where they weren't allowed to do the head stomps and all the kinds of other crazy shit. You need to be in Japan to get the full experience. And Final Conflict 2005, I mean, I think we all we all remember where we were for that one. That was some some peak MMA stuff going on there. And so we'll be still assembling some of the rules for the the drinking challenge. Uh, also wanted to point out. Guess how many patrons we have right now on Patreon, Chad? I saw we rocketed right up over 400, which I commented to you before we went on the air is just crazy. Absolutely crazy. We're sitting at 404 right now. That's one more than when I looked like two minutes ago. See, we are just humbled by this outpouring of financial support from our listeners. And we want to remind you, if you want to get down and play the CME Pride FC drinking challenge along with us, you got to sign up. Patreon.com slash co-main event. Get on there. Be a friend of the podcast. Three different pay tiers depending on uh, how much you really want to invest in this whole thing. Get down with us. Damage your liver with us. It'll be a good time. Somebody's going to get stomped in the head. You know, Ben, years... Somebody might be Chad. Years later, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams actually had a falling out. Okay, that I did know. They were engaged in an epic battle over the White House. Adams called Jefferson, quote, a mean-spirited, low-lifed fellow, and in an attack ad, warned that the consequence of a potential Jefferson presidency would be murder, robbery, rape, adultery, and incest will be openly taught and practiced. The air will be rent with cries of the distressed, the soil will be soaked with blood, and the nation black with crimes. Can you imagine 
especially with just our current situation, imagining how the worst thing that could happen to America would be a Thomas Jefferson presidency. <laughs> yeah, those were the days, right? You know, I, I actually watched a little bit of the John Adams series marathon that they ran on HBO yesterday. Oh, yeah. We, I tried to watch that when it came out. Does that mean you did not successfully achieve it? Did, did not make it through. Has some good moments in there. Yeah. What's his name? Paul Giamatti? Mm-hmm. Checked out my wife once on the streets of New York, by the way. Is that true? Is That's that true. A... True story. That's not even a presidential fact. That's just a... Did uh... you observe this with your own eyes or is this like reported by your wife? I think she told me about it. Okay. We're just, I'm just saying we don't know exactly what was going on true, in Paul Giamatti's true. mind at yeah, the time. We don't, we don't know. As always, if you enjoy the Co-Main Event Podcast, you can do us a serious favor by rating, reviewing, or subscribing to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever platform you listen to the show on. Uh, that stuff really does help our ranking and our rating, so lend us a hand. And if you've got a few minutes, go over there and write us a review. Ben, are you ready to do this? Let's do it. I feel like we wasted enough time already. First question this week comes to us from Josh Montgomery. He writes... You know how when two high-level wrestlers get locked in a cage, you can usually expect a mediocre kickboxing match to ensue? Well, I never would have thought that if you lock two boxers in a cage, that a god-awful jujitsu match might break out. You can usually expect that uh, that level of grappling outside of a tavern after closing time on Friday nights. It's not as exciting to see it on a main card on TV. Heather Hardy was an upstart-slash-prospect that I have bought into in the last year, and now I just want to buy her the Damian Maya Jiu-Jitsu for MMA VHS tapes. Please discourse. Ouch! Well... That's a scorching take right there. First of all, everybody should own those VHS tapes, especially if you're a professional fighter. There's just no reason not to. What, what do you think about the scorching hot takedown, no pun intended, uh, of Heather Hardy... By Josh Montgomery here, co well, event podcast, long-time listener. That was not a good fight. Let's, no, let's say that. No, it was not. You know how you could tell that it was not a good fight? Because Mike Goldberg and Chael Sonnen did not feel comfortable putting it over on the broadcast. Yeah, in fact, and felt at, at one point at least kind of apologetic that they had even sort of tried to put it over. Like just on reflex, it seemed. Uh, and those were some of those times, I think, when you're watching the broadcast with Chael Sonnen and, and Goldberg, you... You kind of can sense how they are a little bit self-conscious uh, that the internet is always watching and ready to pounce, which I can understand that would be a tough situation. But even in that situation, they, they found themselves wanting to back away from it a little bit. And I don't really blame them. And I understand, too, the, the feel that you see these two on paper and you think, all right, here's what I'm going to watch is sort of a like the equivalent of when Marcus Davis would try to get people into a gentleman's agreement to stand and bang with him. It felt like we're, that's maybe what we were going to end up with here. And instead we get the exact opposite, you know, a, a grappling match between two people who seem like their grappling is, let's say, a work in progress. Can we talk about Heather Hardy a little bit? Sure. Ben, uh, obviously she gets the win here by unanimous decision over Anna Ulitin, uh 29-28, then 30-27 times two. Uh, she improved her mixed martial arts record to, what is it, 2-1 and one now? Yes. 2-1 and one in mixed martial arts. Uh, she is a person, obviously, that Bellator has kind of latched onto, I think, understandably, as a potential promotable element for their show. Uh, and th- this is kind of like not an unusual thing for Bellator to do, right? Sort of latch on to a fighter who lacks MMA experience kind of put them out there in the Bellator cage and just sort of see what happens. And like, uh, clearly Heather, Heather Hardy, who's 36 years old, uh, seems like a delightful person really understands the, uh, the promotional part of the mixed martial arts game. 
Uh, she has a, a a look that she goes for both in the cage and like during weigh-in. Seems like she has a a signature outfit that a, she wears. Let's call it a signature bathing suit, right? With uh, like matching glasses, which it, it didn't go off perfectly this time around uh, with the weigh-in situation. But like, uh, you know, if you want a fighter who understands the the uh, the importance of selling themselves and like trying to promote themselves and like clearly having a specific thing that they are offering to mixed martial arts fans. Heather Hardy uh, encapsulates all of that. And that's about all the positive stuff that I can say to this juncture. Aside from the fact that she seems hella tough. Well, yeah, I mean, tough as nails. If you're, if you're looking for positive things to say, I think that what we saw in her first Bellator fight, uh, remember that one where she went out there, got bloodied up a little bit uh, and still, you know, like against, not exactly top level competition, but went out there, got the late knockout. It seemed like a, a battle back and forth, and it seemed like she was enjoying even the parts of the combat that were not going her way. And she came out of there with like a real enthusiasm that seemed kind of infectious. And I think that's one of the things that got people really excited. And then you see, you know, the the doctor stoppage in the last one, and then this kind of mediocre grappling decision win. And you see, okay, there's still a lot of ground that needs to be covered here for Heather Hardy. The thing is, it gets a little weird when Bellator is putting on the main card of like a fight card that it clearly wants to be kind of a big deal. A fighter who is you're coming into this one and one in MMA against a fighter who is like, you know, two and three or something coming in as an MMA fighter. I mean, both they have extensive boxing records, but still you look at them and you think like, okay, they're, they're not who you would imagine would be somebody who Bellator wants to to throw out there for a huge or like one of your bigger fight card events, one of the ones that you actually expect people are going to tune in and watch, except for promotability, basically. Like, that's what we're doing here. And that's always a little bit unseemly. And not just when Bellator does it, when the UFC does it, when they used to do it with, you know, get super hard behind Sage Northcutt or with CM Punk or anybody like that. It's always just a little bit, like, it just kind of reminds you of what is really going on because it's too obvious to ignore. Yeah. And like clear, there are clear pitfalls to that approach that Bellator takes. Right. And they're doing it with a number of fighters that, you know, Heather Hardy's not the only one. Clearly uh, they have a, a stable of like high level amateur wrestlers, um, all of whom either had zero fights or like one or two MMA fights that they are, that Bellator is sort of sort of trying to craft into uh, promotable entities in mixed martial arts. Uh, and I don't necessarily know that like throwing Heather Hardy out there on a, on a tent pole Bellator event is any different than like Kimbo slice in a way, like, you know, you're, you're promoting different qualities obviously, but at the same time, like it's sort of the same, uh, playbook, like people wanted to watch Kimbo slice for various reasons. People want to watch Heather Hardy for various reasons. Uh, like Heather Hardy clearly, uh, has a has a good sales pitch coming out of boxing, crossing over to MMA. She got a lot of uh, mileage out of commentary leading up to Mayweather McGregor. So a lot of stuff that she's doing, uh, you know, doing right, doing properly. And I just like, I feel like, this, you know, when you watch a super bad fight on the television, that's that's not fun. And there are moments of it where you're like, good Lord, what are we doing here? Yeah. Right. But you could say the same thing about Kimbo Slice. Uh, dot dot of 5,000, like even in a, a, in a situation where the stakes turned out to be much, much higher. So. Right. But I guess one of the differences, uh, maybe between the way Bellator used Kimbo Slice some and the way we saw like Elite XC or somebody use Kimbo Slice, where it was like when it's Kimbo Slice versus like Bo Cantrell, 
you know what they're hoping for. You know what the goal is for the promoter. Uh, and when it's Kimbo Slicer versus Ken Shamrock or even versus Dada 5000, you can be like, well, they might be ready to go whatever way it goes. And I think that that's where you kind of get into a, a sticky situation as a promoter is where you, you have somebody you're clearly behind and you want them to win so you, so you can keep promoting them. And then, it, like, people see that for what it is and they don't get super enthusiastic about it to begin with. And then if, if we also see, like, maybe the skill level is not where it needs to be, it gets a little distasteful. All right, next question. What do you got for me? This one comes from Craig Beckwith. I'm sure the three rounds this week, ha-ha, in your face, Craig, will be filled by UFC-related verbal sparring and potentially even a mention of the second uh, quarterfinal in the Bellator Heavyweight Grand Prix, but can I draw your attention to the fall of one-time light heavyweight champion Liam McGeary? The Brit has gone from being ranked in the top ten despite being jettisoned outside the world's premier organization, which almost never happens, and beating the likes of Emmanuel Newton, the big homie, and Tito Ortiz to being stopped by a relatively unknown 8-2 pre-fight Nemkov. How do you explain this dramatic fall from grace? And where do you see him going from here? It feels like a major rebuilding process is due, starting with a homecoming in England later this year. Yeah, the thing with Liam McGeary is weird, right? Like, he went from being 11-0 and the Bellator light heavyweight champion coming off those wins, as the emailer said, over Manny Newton and Tito Ortiz to now being one and three in his last four fights. Uh, you can somewhat forgive the loss to Phil Davis just because Phil Davis comes in and is just clearly a cut above everybody else until Ryan Bader arrives. Uh, but now you got these back-to-back stoppage losses against Linton Vassal and, and most recently Vadim Nemkov, uh, and this one wasn't close, man. No, kick the shit out of his legs. Vadim Nemkov like beat the bricks off Liam McGeary uh, from the from the heels up, and it was the leg kicks that ended up doing the doing the thing. But it's it's hard for me to remember like a a, a fighter like Liam McGeary that we were so high on, or that many of us were so high on, go, falling quite this far in, into a fight where he just looks completely overmatched against uh, Vadim Nemkov. Uh, and is now on the heels of this sort of like terrible skid. Okay, but the mention of the big homie Manny Newton made me wonder, is Liam McGeary the new oh. Manny Newton? Because you remember a similar thing happened. with uh, Emmanuel Newton was on a really good run there in Bellator. I think like he only lost one fight for, you know, as he was coming up through Bellator, lost that split decision to Attila Vey, which he later avenged with a split decision of his own. But, you know, won like six or seven fights in a row in Bellator, then had that first loss, a decision loss to uh, Liam McGeary. I don't know if that's, maybe that's the one where he wasn't paying attention to his coincidences and deja vus, or maybe it's the one where he had too much sex before the fight. I can't remember which one, or maybe it was the one where he found out the universe didn't have his back. I can't remember which one it was, but it was one of those losses where he lost that one, then he loses Phil Davis, Linton Vassal, you know, he lost like three in a row. Bounced out of Bellator, won one. I'm looking at his record right now. Got one win back at Fight Night 2 Medicine Hat. I know you were at that one, right? Up there in Alberta. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you made the trip for that. Uh, and then reeled off another three losses in a row uh, with that last knockout to uh, Nikita Krylov. So, like, is it just like an MMA thing that can happen where people get excited about you, especially when maybe you have a move, whether it's a spinning back fist or a, you know, reverse inverted triangle kind of move, where you catch a couple people with it because they don't know. Then people figure out what your deal is and they figure out what your weaknesses are. And suddenly you fall off hard. If you don't adjust. If I'm walking down the street, listening to the co-main event podcast and I am Liam McGeary 
The moment, Wait, let me just picture it. Let me get it. Let me get that image in my mind. I He's brought, got the earbuds in, right? Yep. Either that or some of those big like uh, headphones that are all the rage these days. Okay. Noise canceling, cover up your whole ears. He's walking. He's walking to the post office. <laughs> That's right. He's mailing out some McGeary gear to the fans. Uh, the moment that I hear Ben Folks po- pose the question, "Am I the new Manny Newton?" I'm ripping off my headphones. <laughs> I'm taking my phone or. Maybe Liam McGeary has an MP3 player out of my pocket and I'm throwing it in the river. I'm just, I'm done right there. Do you feel like we lost a listener here? I just, I think that that is like, if you, if Wait, you, our Patreon just went down to 403. I don't understand. <laughs> uh, that's, that's dire, right? Like if you, like you, you don't want to wind up like the big homie man no. up there in medicine hat. No, you don't. You know, one wants to go to medicine hat, but I'm saying maybe that is one possible version of the future. Maybe there are other versions. Maybe there's the version where instead of blaming your deja vus and your coincidences and the sex you had before the fights and the universe not having your back, you fix whatever's going wrong and you you add a little more to your game. Because it seemed like, you know, at least on the, the commentary for this one, they had it out like Liam McGeary had a, his whole system figured out now with his coaches. They were like, okay, instead of laying there off your back and trying to nab these submissions and giving away rounds in the process, what you're going to do is you're going to go for those submissions. If you don't get it, you're going to get back up and you're going to fight. And it was like, okay, that was not his problem here. His problem was not that he spent too much time laying there uh, trying to get submissions. His problem was that when he was standing up, he got his leg kicked to shreds and then he didn't have a plan for dealing with that. So maybe if you use this as a learning experience, once your badly damaged lead leg finally heals up, maybe you can grow from it. But I, I guess what I'm saying is that maybe he's also reached the point when just being the guy who surprises you with having long limbs and sneaky submissions on the ground, maybe that's not going to cut it anymore. Yeah, he could be just kind of one-dimensional at this point. People have figured him out, like you said. Uh, it could additionally be that Vadim Nemkov turns out to just be way better than maybe we expected him to be. 25 years old, uh, fought a bunch in Ryzen. Uh, he's 9-2 and two now, but he's on a, a four-fight win streak after this victory over McGeary. So, like, you know, Nemkov is a guy who's still young enough that, that like, maybe he's just hitting his stride and maybe he's going to turn out to be, uh, you know, a, a prospect that should have been heralded much higher coming into a fight against Liam McGeary. And obviously we won't know that. Uh, for a little while yet. Well, you can tell he's tough because you, did you see how swollen his foot was by the end of that fight from from kicking Liam McGeary? I missed that. But yeah, like, they showed a shot of it. It was pretty damn swollen, and he seemed like he was still going to just keep kicking you for as long as you, you let him have a chance at that. So, big surprise, Russian MMA fighter turns out to be tough as hell. If you want to see a guy holding a giant trophy in his Wikipedia picture... <laughs> yes, I saw that. Go on and check out Vadim Nemkov because... Uh, he won himself a contest. Yeah, I believe it was some kind of a Sambo tournament. Um, by the way, how much meldonium do you think is just flowing through a Sambo tournament in Russia? Like, what do you think? What's just, if you were to go around and just take some blood samples at a Russian Sambo tournament, what do you think is popping up? Well, he's not having any trouble holding this trophy. <laughs> okay. That's all I'll say about right. that. An Olympic athlete from Russia. Ben, our smallest president, stood at five foot four and weighed around one hundred pounds. Do you know the name? I thought we agreed you weren't going to do this. James Madison was the smallest president. I thought we talked about it, and the word granular was thrown around. Next question wasn't is, Germain. 
Next, que- next question this week comes to us from deceased American stock car racer, Leroy Yarborough. Oh, okay. Good to hear from him. He says, let's talk about Matt Mitrione, or as Chad likes to call him, Matt Matrione. Wait a minute. Are we, are we ascribing that to you? That's a Derek Lewis original, Matt Matrione. So, you know, there's so many twisting threads at this point. It's hard for people to, to keep track. Is it possible that deceased stock car racer uh, Leroy Yarbrough got into this sport so recently that he only he thinks that you were the one who started the Matt Matrione? Who knows? Maybe I was. Uh, anyway, he continues to say, When the fight started, I said to myself, Wow, he looks like someone who could give Stipe some trouble. That is, until Big Country took him down, and I quickly realized that Matt has some serious entry-level wrestling skills. My question about Matt is the same question I have when I watch any Bellator fighter. Where would he rank among the UFC's fighter is in his weight class? Uh, we kind of know. Yeah, we know, we? we know the answer to that. And it's uh, fair to Midland, right? Not the worst, not the best. Right. Over there in the UFC. What did you think of, like, watching this fight, and you come out of there... Matt Mitrione wins the decision over Roy Nelson. Didn't exactly run away with this one. Uh, pissed off at Roy Nelson's use of a big toe in the fence. I don't know if you heard that. Which, did. by the way, man, people out here getting their nuts kicked, getting their eyes poked, getting elbowed straight in the back of the damn head, and you're going to complain about somebody's big toe in the fence? Like, that is white belt dendasso, man. That is not, that's just that's partly even worth complaining about in this. But he does win the fight. What do you think now about Matt Mitrione's chances to go all the way in the Bellator heavyweight tournament now that we're starting to see how it shakes out a little bit? Well, I tell you what, like I kind of agree with some of the uh, analysis here from deceased American stock car racer Leroy Yarbrough in that like Mitrione looked good in this fight for uh, a lot of it, for the majority of it. Like he's out there uh, looking sharp with his striking. He throw like Mitrione is clearly like a long and even in at his sort of advanced age, pretty athletic heavyweight. Yeah, he's agile. And when he uses that to his advantage, agile is a good word for that. Yeah. He's out there agile. He's agilitying the fuck out of that. When he uses that to his advantage, like against a, against a guy like Roy Nelson, he looks really good. He's throwing that weird lead uppercut. Uh, he's he's popping him with jabs from crazy angles, mixing it up well. So it seemed like Roy Nelson didn't really know what was coming or when. In fairness, Roy Nelson known to be hittable, e- eminently hittable. And to his credit, like as as Matt Mitrione said afterwards, like uh, Roy Nelson was not phased by n- any of those punches. Uh, also a part of Roy Nelson's whole thing. And then, the, uh, you know, the part where you have to question what's going on with Matt Mitrione are the parts where Roy Nelson realizes I can shoot a double, like, and hoist this guy up over my head and dump him on his back kind of whenever I want to. Okay. So here's my question, though. When you're looking at the rest of this field, you got past Roy Nelson, and he exposed some wrestling deficiencies that you have. Uh, and there's some other people in this tournament who can wrestle a little bit. However, they are mostly concentrated in the light heavyweight-ish version of this bracket so does matt mitrione's just size and heavyweightishness kind of nullify that does do you, do you think that based on who's left he deserves to be more of a favorite now well leading into this fight on last week's show i think that i said the winner of matt mitrione versus roy nelson uh deserves to be the odds on favorite in this tournament if anybody who you know is is currently in the draw ends up winning it uh, coming out of it, I feel like I'm a little bit more interested in what Ryan Bader is going to do because mm-hmm. Bader is the guy that you basically just talked about. Like he can wrestle. Uh, he's got good skills on the feet. 
he's a light heavyweight, but I tell you what, man, Ryan Bader is a massive dude, especially if you see him, uh, like in a hotel hallway. He, that's a big motherfucking guy right there. Uh, and I think that we might be surprised if we get to see Matt Matreon against Ryan Bader. Uh, we might be surprised when we see them together to be like, oh, wow, Ryan, like Ryan Bader does not actually give up a ton of size to a guy like Matt Mitrione. Uh That being said, this thing is wide open, is it not? Like, I feel like we have not learned very much about what could potentially happen in this tournament. Uh, and I still think that it's anybody's ball game. I, you know, I think I wouldn't be surprised if Mitrione won it. I wouldn't be surprised if Bader won it. I wouldn't be surprised if someone who's not in the draw wins it. And I think you could go any which way at this point. I would be surprised if we actually get a good fight out of this tournament, at least in the first round. A single good fight? So far. Have you seen one? Have you seen a fight you'd like to watch again out of this tournament? You know what you should do? We just talked about if you want to see a guy holding a trophy, you should go check out Vadim Nemkov's Wikipedia page. Look up some photos of Fedor and uh, Frank Mir from their Bellator, uh, like the, the press function that they have done together for Bellator leading up to this fight. Cause that don't look like two dudes that are out here to win a tournament. You know what I mean? <laughs> what are you saying? I'm just saying they look like, uh, they you know, they're, they're, they're like, all right, well we'll do one. And we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Frank Mir does look like he's back on his, uh, smuggling bowling balls in his shirt game. So that should be interesting. Uh, next question here comes from Devin Scott. I'm curious to know what you thought of the Derek Lewis versus Marcin Tybrua fight this Sunday. Who was winning up to the third round KO by Mr. Social Media Derek Lewis? And lastly, if you would have asked me last year if Francis Ngannou should fight Derek Lewis, I would have argued, don't kill off potential contenders. Ask me that now, and I say, hells yeah. What say you? You know, it's interesting that he brings that up because during the time in this fight where it seemed like Marcin Tybrua might win this thing, I actually thought to myself, the, the, you know, the worst thing in the world wouldn't be Francis Ngannou coming off a loss, fighting Derek Lewis coming off a loss. Because, first of all, hashtag we all would watch. Would watch. Second of all, uh, not going to be a ton of wrestling in that fight, I don't think. Uh, thirdly, like, who doesn't want to watch Derek Lewis and Francis Ngannou go out there and just throw some bungalows and see what happens? I want to watch that. As to the question of who was winning this fight, like, clearly Marcin Tybura figured out that if he gets Derek Lewis down, it would be relatively easy for him to keep his position and the stuff that Derek Lewis did to get back up or get out of the position like clearly wore Derek Lewis out but like I was not surprised when Derek Lewis won this thing by third round TKO because they uh, every fight starts on the feet and every time this thing was on the feet the first thing he did was punch Marcin Tybura really really hard right in his face well and I love his description of how he won the fight afterwards which was like his coaches basically explaining to him that he's probably going to lose if it goes to the scorecard and so him be like all right fuck it then let's get it on I guess I'll go out there and just knock him out and I think that like I, I was talking uh, on the MMA Junkie radio yesterday with some of the guys and kind of comparing it to, like, remember what Shaq used to say about making free throws? Like how he'd make them when it counts? And that seems to be kind of how Derek Lewis regards takedowns. Like, he'll stop them when he really, really needs to. When it's, you know, do or die time in the third round. Then he's going to get serious about trying to stop your takedown and stay on his feet and punch you really hard in the face. After that, you know, he figure, he seems like he goes into a fight figuring, I'll probably get taken down a few times. And then I'll lay there breathing for a couple minutes. And then I'll decide, okay, I'm getting up now. And 
then we'll see what happens from there. And hey, you know, if the guy takes his back, which is also going to happen to him several times a fight, it seems, that's when, Chad, he gives you the shimmy shake. <laughs> that's, right. Coaches. that's right. Yes. I yeah, need the absolutely. shimmy shake. Yeah. Give me the shimmy shake. Calling for the shimmy shake. I need the shimmy shake, Derek. I mean, I think it's important to point out, like you said, in Derek Lewis's defense, he doesn't look helpless down there. Like he looks like when he has the energy to do it and he decides to stand up, he can stand up. He does it routinely in the, in all of his fights. Uh, but at the same time, like this and the, like the cardio and the, the takedown defense are what have been from the beginning, the question marks around Derek Lewis and you know he, he, now that he's two fights removed from his retirement uh it doesn't seem like let's just say it doesn't seem like the holes in the game are going to close up anytime <laughs> you, right? you think what we got is what we got I think Derek Lewis is a finished product out there <laughs> well hey throw him in there with Francis Ngannou let him call Francis Ngannou an African booty scratcher some more let Francis Ngannou get really mad and want to knock his head off and you got yourself a recipe for a lot of fun, I think. All right, let's do this one, though. From El Sexy Grande, he writes, Where does hashtag going deep rank on the all-time top ten list of post-fight interview quotes? Okay, it seems like we have developed a, a subcategory of post-fight interview awesome quotes that can be filed under uh, allusions to sex I'm going to have later. Like that's there's there's been enough of those at this point that we can kind of rank them together because there's Brock Lesnar's gonna gonna go get on top of my wife right climb on top of my wife probably the archetypal example here uh who was the guy uh the light heavyweight Australian guy who tried to do the mic drop and John Anik caught it you know who I'm talking about just a couple of weeks ago yeah was it Tyson just, Pedro it was Tyson okay. Pedro that's it uh and his was I thought. Like the most gentlemanly we, one we've heard. That he was going to go drink uh, like copious amounts of beer. Can't remember exactly how he phrased it. Uh, but whatever he said about what he was going to do with his wife or girlfriend seemed like it was going to be more considerate of her needs as well than Brock Lesnar's did. And then you have Derek Lewis saying he's going deep. And like almost warning his wife. Like just like suggesting maybe that... It's not going to be an entirely great thing for her, but he wanted her to be, she could start preparing herself mentally. So you have those three. Hold on, rewind. Are you trying to allege that Brock Lesnar may not be a sensitive and attentive lover? Well, I didn't think that's where we were going to go today, where we were going to talk about what kind of lover we thought Brock Lesnar was. But yeah, that's what I'm saying. If you, if a guy came to me and was like, hey man, I'm thinking about watching this fight night, what do I need to see? I would definitely say, you know, some of the fights are okay, but make sure you watch Derek Lewis's post-fight interview because not only because where he says, uh, get ready, I'm going deep, which, ugh, I mean, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but they go immediately from that, a hard cut to Nate Diaz in the crowd. <laughs> and Nate Diaz sees the camera in his face and is like, you can see the light bulb go on <laughs> above Nate Diaz's head. He's like, oh, I know something awesome to do. Like... <laughs> world's largest spliff appears in his mouth and he's going to light that thing up right there. Like that, that was the greatest 15 seconds of this entire fight night. Right. I, I mean, I like that. I also like my favorite part of that was seeing the reaction of like the children sitting behind Nate Diaz. Yeah. I didn't notice that until it got memed, but I agree <laughs> with you that that's, that's some good stuff. But one of the, one of the lesser celebrated parts of Derek Lewis's interview that I liked was when uh, Jimmy Smith 
who, you know, you, you talked about just coming over from Bellator and already being one of the best uh, UFC commentators, said something to him about, you know, his ability to get back up, win by late knockout, and Derek Lewis showing himself to be a true MMA nerd by being like, yeah, no, that's how I do. I know you, you're just getting caught up because you came over from Bellator, but yeah, that's how I do. And you're like, okay, Derek Lewis is looking at the same memes and reading the same tweets we are. And that I I think I love it those moments when you get to realize like okay these fighters even the ones who try to act like cool tough guys who don't read or pay any attention to this man they're on MMA Twitter same as you Ben John Quincy Adams oh, was known for skinny dipping in the Potomac River every morning a reporter took advantage of this information and sat on the president's clothes until he would grant her an interview presidential facts. I don't believe that one. All right, what do you got next? What's next? Okay, this is from the Cheeseburger Walrus. Okay, well, we're skipping around now. You skipped list. around to El Sexy Grande. I copy and pasted El Sexy Grande up under the Devin Scott question about Derek Lewis because the El Sexy Grande question was also about Derek Lewis. That's not the way. It, that's not the order that it appears in the, well, in the list. No, because I did it on the fly. Well, now we're we're skipping around. So wait, when you do it, when you skip around, you're doing something on the fly that is known only to you. But when I do it, I'm skipping around. Fine. Yes, accurate. People, the people can make their own judgments here. From the Cheeseburger Walrus, the consensus pick used to be Bisping, but then he had to go and knock out Luke Rockhold. So I ask you, is Donald Cowboy Cerrone the best UFC fighter to never win a title with the organization? Wins over Barboza, Alvarez, Benson, Henderson, and more solidify him for solidify it for him, in my opinion. If not him, then who? That's a vexing question. Donald Cerrone, uh, he lost multiple opportunities to win the WEC lightweight title. And then after coming to the UFC, he lost to Rafael Dos Anjos uh, in a fight for the lightweight title. You might have to refresh my memory about who else would be even in the conversation, right? Like Kenny Florian was always a guy that we talked about being uh, a high-level fighter who never really got the opportunity to have the title. Um, even, Nate Diaz? Nick Diaz? Nick Diaz, Nate Diaz. Well, all right, let's do this. Let's back up just a little bit. How good, like let's say Donald Cerrone calls it quits right now, which we all know is not happening. He's fighting another, he's getting another 21 wins in the UFC probably. Uh, how good are we, well, what's our impression of Donald Cerrone in terms of like how good a fighter he is? Well, uh, current chair of the all-time wins record, so that's really good. That's That's really good, but that's more about longevity, right, than like, than sheer greatness. Yeah, I mean, but he's, if he hit that mark at 34... It's not as if, you know, he had to do it way longer than anybody else. Just, I mean, it's not necessarily longevity so much as it is how often he fights. And he, right. Like, you look at his record and he's got years where he's fighting five times, four times, four times, four times. You know, like, I mean, that's just more than most people get in there. And, you know, he, you can say he loses the big ones, but then up until recently, at least, kind of only lost the big ones. Uh, so... I think that not only does he get a lot of points for having the all-time wins record, and you know, you're right, he's probably going to add to that, uh, but also being badass in two different weight classes, like not necessarily the, the thing that you usually see where somebody especially drops down and keeps trying to drop down because they're struggling, but you know, going up a weight class and still whipping some ass, I think that gives him a lot of street cred. And just the the style of fighting he has, I think he was also tied for like the finish record like the number of finishes in the ufc so 
I think you put all that together, and it reminds me kind of of the conversation we used to have about the UFC Hall of Fame. Like, are we making it an elite fighter Hall of Fame or just a rad dude Hall of Fame? I think he has enough in both, like, overall real inarguable statistics and just rad dude quotient that when you put them together, then you have to call him a great fighter. Yeah, I mean, he's clearly a first ballot UFC Hall of Famer, if such a thing even existed. Uh, but yeah, again, the ballot is just Dana White being like, like putting his cell phone against his chest and being like, what, who? No. Okay. Yeah, sure. Fine. And then going back. Uh, and again, like, it, it, all right. I, I, yes, I agree with you. Donald Cerrone is a great UFC fighter slash figure, but it's a different kind of greatness than, uh, you might get from like Anderson Silva or, okay. you know, John Jones, really, uh, like Donald Cerrone as long as you don't delve too far into what his like personal beliefs might be, seems like a guy who's super easy to like as a fighter. Well, you uh, could say that about a lot of people out there. Right. Uh, special shout out, by the way, to uh, showing up to this event, looking like a, a faith healer. Like, uh, yes. You've got a little man of the woods yeah. going on there. Do you, did you see Django Unchained? Like, yes. It looked like Donald Cerrone shows up in town, drive on that wagon with the tooth on top of it. <laughs> From from that movie, uh, and like yeah, he's like like we talked about this before. Like being Donald Cerrone is a thing in the UFC, almost like being the Undertaker is a thing in WWE. <laughs> right. Like they always used to say, the Undertaker doesn't need the title because he's already the Undertaker. It's kind of the same thing with Donald Cerrone. It almost doesn't matter that he had lost three fights in a row heading into this fight against Yancy Medeiros. Uh, he's still Donald Cerrone. He's still main eventing this this fight night event. Uh, you know, they talked a lot about how he really needed to get this win, which I guess, like, I, I agree with that. He did need to get a win just to break the three fight losing streak. But at the same time, if he had gone out, if he had come out on the wrong end of this slugfest, it's not like next time Donald Cerrone was going to fight, we would have been like, nah, don't think so. We would have had questions. Yeah. We would have said, where's Donald Cerrone headed, uh, at this point in his career, which I think is still super valid to ask, but like we would we still would have been there. Okay. Well, since it seems like the title thing is what people get hung up on when they want to decide whether this guy deserves to be thought of as one of the greats or not. Uh who had the better career up until this point? Donald Cerrone or Benson Henderson? Wow. That's a uh, That again is another super vexing question. Like clearly Benson Henderson was the better fighter at the you know, if they're both out there at their best, but Donald Cerrone has had the better career, obviously. And Donald Cerrone beat him. Really? Yeah. Well, the One list decision. of Donald Cerrone's opponents are is just way too long for me to even look at. I mean, well, he Benson also Anderson he, beat Donald Cerrone twice. Yeah, but I mean, the most recent one, Donald Cerrone, Donald Cerrone won that one. And, okay, how about this? Uh, Donald Cerrone or Anthony Pettis? Cerrone. Anthony, Anthony Pettis beat him. Okay. And had a belt. Well, that's what I'm saying, man. Like, Donald, the, the, the greatness that Donald Cerrone is fashioned in the UFC is a different kind of greatness. Like, I don't even know that it's necessarily uh, that you judge it by wins and losses or, or, like, what he accomplished from any fight or how he compares to someone else skills-wise. Like, he, like, the thing to me that is super remarkable about Donald Cerrone is that he is one of the very, very few UFC fighters who like made a cottage industry out of themselves, which is 
like especially today when you got 7,000 fighters on the roster and they're all cookie cutter versions of the same guy, uh, like being Donald Cerrone has turned into a thing. Being Donald Cerrone's grandma is a thing. <laughs> That'll, that tells you something. Right that, does, that tells you a lot. All right, where are we at here? Next question uh, comes to us from Great Dane. He writes, uh, were the MMA gods napping upon Mount Zion's Sunday night? That shit Curtis Millinder pulled in round one usually results in a guy losing almost immediately after, uh, almost always in an embarrassing fashion. Instead, he gets to follow it up with a highlight reel knee to Tiago Alves' dome. I have to ask, or I, I ask, have the gods gone soft on us? For what it's worth, when Alves face planted into the mat in round one, I also thought the fight should be over. Thank God he was allowed to get up and have his brain scrambled some more. Uh, hashtag allowed to be a warrior. I I only saw the highlight of this one. Uh, didn't see this one live. Ask me why. <sighs> why? Had to go play a hockey game. Oh, Ask sure. me how it went. <sighs> how did it go? We won. Ask me if I scored a goal. <sighs> yes, I scored a goal okay. and had a key assist. Thank you very much. Then got home just in time to catch a highlight of Curtis Millinder, Niantago Alves in the face. Now, the... The way Alves went down there, and I think uh, Curtis Millinder did kind of the sweet, like, I'm almost, I'm going to walk off unless, wait, are you getting up? Because if you're getting up, I'll come back. And, but then not like in a, in a great hurry. Like, that is a species of the walk off KO that I kind of like. Like, it, it, it's not quite the Mark Hunt cool turn on your heels and stroll right away, like, therefore forcing the referee to stop. But it is being the thing like, all right, I, I think we're done here. Unless you would like to argue otherwise, in which case I'll make sure we're done here. It's sort of like, uh, it's really in your best interest to be done here, sir. Yeah. Like, I, here, here's what I think is best. And, you know, go ahead and talk, try to talk me out of it if you want. I think you'll regret it. Uh, speaking of guys who have had a rough road and at this point, like, kind of seem, I don't know if lost is the right word, but like unable to find a real, real place to call home in the UFC, like, Tiago Alves was a guy who like, you know, throughout 2006, 2007, 2008 was really, really good in the UFC since, since his welterweight title shot against George St. Pierre at UFC 100, which is a pretty big spot, by the way. Uh, he has gone five and seven since 2009 and one and three in his last four. Uh, that includes losses to Carlos Condit and Jim Miller, a win over Patrick Cote. And then this, this, K, flying knee KO loss. I guess it wasn't flying, was it? It was just sort of like a oh, counter just lifting it up really counter high. Counter knee KO to uh, Curtis Millinder. Uh, and a guy like that you have spent time with. You wrote a feature about Tiago Alves for, uh, what was it, Fight Magazine? Yeah. RIP. And that was before the George St. Pierre fight. That was a long time ago. Like, so, like, he's a guy that you look at and you, you almost feel bad for him in a way. Like, he just doesn't seem like he's been able to find any consistency uh, for years and years, and at this point, kind of unclear uh, where he's headed, even though, you know, 34 years of age, so not, like, super old for for a mixed martial arts fighter. Yeah, but then the kind of style that he's had, uh, that'll put some miles on you. So maybe chronological age doesn't tell us absolutely everything. Uh, plus, you know, he might find himself in a situation where you're basically being fed to a bunch of younger guys the UFC wants to help them make a name off of you. And if you lose a step when you're fighting the way Tiago Alves does, it's, it's not quite the same as losing a step if you're Chael Sonnen. Uh, that, that style sometimes does not age quite as well. And, uh, man, 
we've seen how the UFC loves to cannibalize the older parts to help prop up the newer ones. Shit could get kind of depressing here if we're not careful. All right, this one comes from Wesley the Worm. Ooh, Wesley the Worm. Yeah. Don't know if you guys caught Brent Brookhouse's return to Bloody Elbow this past week, but he basically wrote an article asking whether the UFC was a, quote, Gen X fad that will now fade from relevance as its target demographic ages out. A few years ago, this would have been laughable, but now I'm having a hard time talking myself out of it. Can you? This one hits me right in the gut as a soon-to-be 40-year-old yeah. man uh, who got into the UFC uh like hot and heavy 10 12 years ago don't say right? hot and heavy right in there well we don't already talked about whether brock lesnar is a attentive lover that ship has sailed my friend so what you're trying to tell us right now is that you are a passionate passionate lover passionate and attentive lover of the ufc <laughs> during the early 2000s the mid 2000s uh and so it's baffling to me the point that we find ourselves at with the ufc right now Considering that this, like, if you took it, if you just looked at the sport of mixed martial arts in a vacuum, you would have no choice but to say it has kind of only gotten awesomer in terms of better athletes, better fighters, dudes out there now doing video game shit, like, so regularly that it's not even that unusual to see young fighters out there pulling off weird flying, spinning jump off the cage moves that when we got into the sport were unheard of. Yeah, right. And also the flip side, if you were to ask me, when have we seen the most truly just like awful displays? It was not, it's not now it was decades ago. Yeah. So like the sport has only gotten better. The athletes have only gotten better. Uh, like everything else is, is a work in progress, but much of it trending in the right direction, right. In terms of like drug testing, in terms of, uh, some areas of regulation in terms of like the sport, uh, like crossing the road in some degrees from its misspent youth and becoming a little bit more uh, uh, mainstream. And yet, it feel it almost feels like the UFC product. And I guess you might as well lump Bellator in there as well because Bellator is clearly doing a lot of the same promotional heavy stuff that ends up feeling weird and contrived and resulting in, in the, like, not a good product to watch. It just feels weird that we have gotten to this point where, as the sport has gotten awesomer, the product that we watch feels like it has gotten more tedious and less essential. Okay, I won't argue with less tedious, or less essential and more tedious. Um, you know, you mentioned the misspent youth, and I think of this, I read the Brent Brookhouse thing with great interest. I also read Mike Chapetta's yeah, fighting where he compared it to this is MMA's midlife crisis. And I think that there's something to that because it, it is like MMA was on this kind of clear upward trending growth pattern to the point where Dana White was, you know, could not stop himself from exaggerating that and that imagining a future where it just continues until MMA takes over soccer and football and is basically the only sport anybody cares about on planet Earth. That seems like clearly not not happening anytime soon, at least. And so... Like, I do find myself wondering, like, what that is. If it, I don't think it's that it's just a fad that only people of a certain generation get into. But I do think that there's a lot of things that the UFC has done that make it harder to get into it now. Like, they make it harder to just suddenly start being a fan. Yeah, for sure. Well, and the thing is that 
I think the UFC has been spared feeling the full effects of that because the people who are fans are, as we like to say, shit-eating wild men for this. That people, even when they get pissed off at how much you make them sit through just to get to the good stuff and like how hard you make it to even just get to the good stuff that we're supposed to care about, they'll still do it. Even while they recognize like how laborious it can be at times to get there, and even when you take them completely for granted as a fan base, they will still keep hanging on because, like you said, when the you know, cage door closes and we get to the stuff that's actually what makes up this sport, it is good and they're really into it. And so it seems like maybe what has to happen there is, like, is it just a question of the UFC needs to change, like, ha- have a course correction in how it deals with this stuff? Because, like, when we talk about the tedium of it, a lot of it has to be, like, you know, you look at the Reebok deal, stuff like that, where you squeezed a lot of the personality out of this in an attempt to make a quick buck. And that's, to me, what it comes down to is that we've seen a lot of bad things happen to the, the product as a result of UFC greed. That They just wanted to quickly, I mean, I think it was a lot of the, the, the Fertitas felt like, hey, we pumped a lot of money into this thing when it wasn't paying out. And then we got to a point when it was popular and we wanted to cash out because they felt like that was their money. They felt like th- this sport owed them their money back after everything that they had done, you know, quote unquote, for it. And so they did not feel bad about doing that. And then they cashed out. And now we're sitting here being like, okay, what, what is this? What has this become kind of slowly right under our noses? And what does it need to be in order to feel the same excitement about it? Right. And well, the reason I said all that stuff about how the sport itself had only become better and better is is the the baffling and remarkable part part about all of this to me is that uh you know the point that we've reached now where the the product feels as stale as it ever has like all of those all of those feelings have resulted because of choices that the promoters made in the face of the sport getting better and better the whole time like almost in spite of the sport itself have we reached this point where what i would call bad promotional decisions have led us to like asking the question online was this a fad that blew up for a while and now is going to dry up and disappear and the umbrella reason at least i think for all of this is that sort of i would say throughout the life of the fox broadcast deal it doesn't feel like any choices have been made with the like with the fan in mind and it doesn't feel like any choices have been made with quality of the product in mind all of the choices that have been made by the ufc have all been like, how do we fulfill our content requirement obligations to Fox? And how do we make as much money off this as possible? And like that, those, those choices have been successful in, you know, getting all of the fights out there that you needed to provide on many different platforms for Fox. And they've been successful in having the Fertitas cash out for, for billions. But those choices weren't made to make the the product better they weren't made to make the sport better and and they didn't like they actively made the sport more laborious to watch well and the, they were admitting that at times when they were when people were complaining about oversaturation and what are we doing in these uh, events at strange times and strange locales and basically the USC was saying well no we decided that doing it this way spreading it thinner is a way for us to make more money so that's why we're doing it <laughs> yeah that definitely is not you saying that you made a decision because you want to deliver a better product to the fans but i guess then the question is, uh, you know, how bad does it need to get for the UFC to say, you know what, we have gone down a wrong path. Let us turn around, 
go somewhere else, try something different. Because it seems like, especially if you just take what you hear from UFC leadership that comes out of Dana White's mouth, there's a stubborn refusal to admit that there is any problem whatsoever. Ratings can decline, pay-per-views can decline, he's going to tell you it's the best year ever. Like He just does not have that in his makeup to say, you know what, we made a mistake and we're going to we're going to try something else now or we're going to go back to something that worked before. You, you just don't see that from him very much. Right. I'm going to toss this question in there because I think this is what we're about to talk about from Austin Shippey who writes, amid the commercials, replays, and promos for UFC Fight Night 126, I've got a quickie question for you. Uh, given the options, where would you like to see the UFC's next broadcast contract land? Uh, and I think that's kind of what you're talking about here, Ben, because like kind of the only thing that, that, can happen that would give anybody in the UFC like a measurable uh, metric to say what happened, where did we go wrong would be if they don't rake in the money that they think they're going to get from their next broadcast deal. And it kind of, at least all signs that we've seen publicly point to the fact that uh, WME IMG Endeavor is not going to be able to cash this thing in like it thought it might be able to uh, as that pertains to the next UFC broadcast deal. And if you can't do that, then I think don't you got to take a, a hard look in the mirror and be like, we thought we were going to be able to leverage all of this into like uh, more multi multi billions in a much different broadcast uh, package, and then we couldn't do that. I think at that point, if you are, I would hope if you're inside the UFC, you got to kind of look around and be like, what went wrong? What happened? Well, and so that's why my answer to this question of like, where would you like to see the next broadcast contract land? I think at this point, we've seen the limits of the power of network TV. Like, we can kind of do away with the idea that, like, hey, as if the U.S. can get on network TV, it'll blow up. And that's, I think, is, like, an interesting thing because it was one of the things we used to kind of tell ourselves, right? Especially as shit-eating wild men back in, like, the early, mid-2000s was the feeling among, like, MMA fans and kind of, like, who were always this kind of this defensive fan base. It was always like, you know what, if people gave this a chance, if it were easier to see, if it were more accessible, more people would be into this. This would be huge. And I think that proved to be the case somewhat. But you remember back when they announced that Fox deal and it was like, this is going to change everything. This is a landmark deal. It's, it, and, and, it, and it did, just not in all the ways that we thought it would. Well, might. then you look at the most recent ratings and you're pulling almost the exact same numbers that you used to pull for pay-per-view prelims on Spike TV. But before you did this Fox deal, so you haven't blown up the way you thought you were going to. Just the numbers tell you that. There's no way around that. And so my answer, like, where would the next broadcast contract land? I'm not under the impression that there's any one network you can name where you'd be like, okay, this would bring some kind of new power that we haven't seen before. I think the best case scenario is that you end up maybe through just desperation and trying to get the money figure that you want, making a deal with somebody who is going to force a little more control over what gets on broadcast tv because you know if you're if you think of yourself as like hey we're a pay-per-view business and the broadcast tv stuff is us delivering content filling the our obligations and using it to advertise our upcoming pay-per-views you're only going to go so far with that but if you have to make a deal with some network that's going to be like we want more say in who goes where and what ends up on free tv and maybe also you know, we don't bury the best fighters at 1 a.m. Eastern time, uh, then maybe you do start to make some progress there because they have more of a stake in making sure that you have awesome ratings uh, rather than just using your network show to sell a, a pay-per-view in the next week. 
At the risk of oversimplifying all this, I'm just going to posit that nearly all of the problems that we experience with the UFC's product today result from oversaturation. From too many fighters, from too many events, from too many fights, uh, the whole thing is just spread so thin. And that, more than anything else, has affected the product in ways that we didn't anticipate going into the Fox deal. and. The, the sort of like Debbie Downer part of all of this is that the easiest and quickest way for the sport to get better, for the product to get better, would be to rein all of that in as it pertains to your next broadcast deal. But the chances of that happening, I think, are very slim. I think that the chances that, especially that, that because the UFC wants to make so much more money on its next broadcast deal, the chances that you're going to hook up with someone who's like, yes, we want to give you a lot more money and we want you to give us less content is, I mean, borderline non-existent, right? Right. I would guess unless somebody steps in and is like, hey, let's, let's try to make each individual event better. And the way that we do that is, is fewer and fewer events. Uh, all right. You want to do this one? Did I read the last one or did you? You read the last okay. one. Okay. Uh, this one comes from Dave Winster. Uh, when I look at the card for UFC on Fox, Emmett versus Stevens, I see a fun event full of bangers who are probably all going to bang, bro. I guess that's one way to do it. But for one of the UFCs, if you'll excuse the term, network TV tentpole events, this one appears to follow a recent pattern of being kind of shitty otherwise. What's the deal here? Has the UFC just given up on Fox? Are we in a temporary holding pattern? Are we in a whole new uh, realm of booking events because they might be aesthetically pleasing regardless of how essential they feel? I'm confused. This one kind of goes along with it, but I like yeah. that the the or I'm least interested in talking about the potential of thinking about this in terms of just like not name value, not who's a needle mover, but just in terms of what we're actually going to get when we get people in the cage. And you think about this fight card uh, where you got Josh Emmett versus Jeremy Stevens, which honestly going to be a fun fight. That one seems an interesting fight to me and a, an interesting style matchup. Uh, Jessica Andrade versus Tisha Torres, OSP versus the Bricklayer, Alir Latifi, uh, and then Mike Perry. The freshly shorn Mike Perry. Out here trying, still trying to, I, I assume, earn enough money to get a RV Winnebago that he can just cruise around the world sparring and checking out the stars with his girl on. Going to take on Max Griffin. Now, in term, like when this one was booked, especially looking at the headliner, everybody's going, okay. The UFC has given up on the Fox thing. Like we're in the end of we're nearing the end of the deal here. The ratings have been kind of bad. And I think maybe there's something to the logic of if you're worried about the bad ratings and you're trying to negotiate a new TV deal, one thing if you're if you appear to be intentionally kind of tanking it or at least not trying super hard, then you can at least point to that as you know, an explanation for the low ratings toward the end of the thing. Whereas if you were to go out here and be like, We're putting the heavyweight title on Fox, and then if you still do bad ratings, then it looks really bad. Or you can look at it and be like, the UFC is saying, here's who our good fighters are now, even if they are, they don't seem like superstars. And especially at this, you know, at the current time when a lot of the people who do seem like superstars are not necessarily the best fighters. Yeah. Like either that or they've figured out that short of putting like Conor McGregor or Ronda Rousey or Brock Lesnar on Fox, that it kind of doesn't matter who you have there. And maybe they've uh, determined that the, the, like the shortest path to success is by putting on a, a fight card that is going to be super wild and full of highlights. Uh, and maybe that 
you know, maybe that drives interest the night of the fights. Maybe, you know, we see the Forrest Griffin, Stefan Bonner effect uh, still happening where people call each other up and they're like, wow, you got to turn this on and, and, and watch. They're texting uh, now. My, oh, yeah. Excuse me. Sorry. Uh, send you a Snapchat. Sending, yeah, a picture of you with the doggy ears and nose. That's what happens on Snapchat, right? Uh, near as I can figure. Uh, and maybe that maybe that's what they're doing, man. Like, maybe they've determined that that's the best way to go. But uh, from the outside looking in, it does seem like something has happened to mark a significantly different direction for these Fox events. Like, and, and again, like, like we just talked about, it's going to be super interesting to see what happens with the next UFC broadcast deal, where if they land somewhere, uh, you know, where the, the network is going to be like, no, we need to have John Jones. We need to have Conor McGregor like once a year, or if like the, it's going to go the complete other direction where they will, uh, you know, show up on some streaming service and it's not going to matter at all. Like, it's just going to be like, what, what, what content can you give us that people will pay nine ninety nine a month? So, like, I don't know, man. It could go multiple different directions. Like, if you had your druthers, which one would you watch? Do you want to watch a crazy fight card where uh, Josh Emmett and Jeremy Stevens knock each other out? Or would you rather have, like, Mighty Mouse throwing Ray Borg up in the air and armbarring him if if you could on, you know, your free two-hour early evening Fox broadcast? Well, hey, I, I love the, the early evening four-fight main card Fox broadcast, so I'm not complaining about that part. And I guess that if if you're not going to make this a home for some really big fights that where, because it seems like the idea is if it's anything people might possibly pay for, then we're not putting it on Fox. Like we're going to save it for the good stuff. Uh, and if that's going to be how you're going to view it, then it does kind of make you wonder like, Hey, how did you ever think that this was going to be the, the big earth shattering move that it was supposed to be? Like, how do you make new fans necessarily? with Mike Perry knocking out some dude as the opener to the main card and then two legitimately really good featherweights who people may not really feel that personally invested in closing out the show. I mean, you're going to get your shit-eating wild men with this, but then you already got them, right? Yeah. I was just thinking about this idea of like making new fans of, of new fighters. Have we, in what circumstance have we seen that work? I'm trying to think. Because it seems to me like your real high-end top draws, right? Your John Joneses, your Ronda Rouseys, your Brock Lesnar's, your Conor McGregor's. It feels like those people are stars the moment they walk in the door. Or certainly by the time, in John Jones's case, by the time he wins the title, I think we're all looking at him like, okay, this dude's the future. This dude's potential greatest of all time. Like, who is a fighter who started out feeling like part of the crowd and then through sheer exposure has become a, a marketable entity. Joanna Jacek, maybe, although I don't necessarily know like how marketable she is. It just seems like we, we circle back a lot to this idea of like making stars, putting people like Mike Perry or Jeremy Stevens or Josh Emmett out there in front of, of the, this large audience. And the theory is people will see them like them and follow them to the next thing in their career. And now I'm wondering like, does that happen in large numbers? Yeah, I mean, it feels like the thing that makes it seem at least harder to happen is the fact that whatever happens this weekend, there's going to be something else next weekend. Right. We're just going to roll right through it. And that there's, it's really hard for anybody to make an, a lasting impression because the next thing is coming. And the, like by you know Tuesday of the next week, 
the UFC is not really thinking about you anymore. They're thinking about the next show. They're thinking about how to promote the next show. Everybody kind of moves on really quickly. That, I mean, that comes down to another oversaturation problem, but it makes it so that it's really hard. Like, it's hard for me to remember what happened in this sport two weeks ago. Right. And it's my damn job. (laughs) Right. Uh, And again, like, that's all oversaturation, right? Not to sound like a broken record, but the problem is too much of everything happening all the time. Let's close on this note. We didn't really answer Austin Shippey's question. Ben, if the only thing that mattered about the UFC's next broadcast deal was what does Ben Folks want, where would you see the UFC land under what circumstance? ESPN. Okay, why? Explain your answer. Show your when, work. When ESPN feels like it can make money off of a sport, then it can do a lot for a sport. And when, a, when it doesn't feel like it can, it can do a lot for a sport, those sports have a harder time. I would point to hockey as one, one example of that, that ESPN, you know, treats hockey as if it's kind of on the edge of the solar system. Like it has to acknowledge that it happens uh, and that people care about it and that it is kind of a major sport, but it's not trying really hard to show you that hockey is awesome. And by the way, as like a fairly recent convert to hockey, as far as a viewer friendly sport, hockey is awesome. You can sit, you know, not a lot of breaks in the action, kind of constantly going, violent, but skilled, and the game will get over in about an hour and a half or so. Not going to make you sit there for a super long time and commit your whole day to it, uh, plus they fight sometimes. Like, there's a lot that you could do with hockey, but it seems like when, you know, you're on NBC Sports most of the time, or the NHL Network, and people have to really try hard to find you, it does make a difference in your overall popularity than if you have uh, ESPN, which granted, not the the monster it once was, but I think can still turn a lot of people who are just like sports fans on to any particular sport that it covers. It sounds like you're coming at this from, from a clear job security standpoint. <laughs> really? Well, I mean, if we're talking about where can really push MMA and like, I don't think access is really the issue. Anymore. You know, it's not like there are a whole lot of people going like, well, Hey, don't put it on some distant cable network that I can't find it. Like that's, that's not really happening so much anymore. So no. I think that you need a little bit of muscle behind there uh, and not somebody who is just kind of like seeing you as a content filler. Right. Like we all know where to find the UFC at this point if we want it. But I think from a consumer standpoint, it would be awesome to get back on like a basic cable style channel, right? Like for all of its drawbacks, that's what Spike TV was. You signed up for basic cable and you got Spike TV. ESPN is, is sort of the same deal. Like, I don't know what the situation is for people who have actual cable, but like you and I both have Dish Network. Uh, and just to get Fox Sports 1, you have to have like the high end, uh, like I believe they call it the silver package. Yeah, you got to be damn platinum or whatever to get Fox Sports 2. Right. And it's you like, don't even have that one, do you? No, I don't. And have- I tried to come over here once and watch a, a prelim and you were like, what? I had to go to a bar. Luckily, yeah. it was a bar where I go to all the time. They just give me the remote. Right. I don't know. <laughs> Tells you a little bit about my life. Like, from a consumer standpoint, it'd save, it, like, a lot of people a lot of money if we just moved down the dial a little bit to uh, ESPN. And I agree with you on all of the other points about viability and, and pushing the product and stuff like that. If we're talking specifically only about my pocketbook, you know what would be kind of awesome? What? Amazon Prime. Huh. Because they're out there. They're in the mix, right? People are talking about the UFC could potentially land at least partially on Amazon Prime. It would be a, a, a situation that could benefit Amazon Prime because they want to get in the live sports business, and it could benefit the UFC. 
uh, just from like a monetary, like Amazon Prime might pay a lot of money for the UFC to have them on that streaming platform. Well, I already got that, my friend, because they signed me up for it without asking me. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say, so you felt, you felt like you wanted to find a way to support another like evil corporation through your MMA fandom? And you're mm-hmm. like, okay. Well, basically trading one for Com- the other. Combine, right? combine my evil corporation overlords. I'm going to be real honest with you. If I'm already getting the UFC on Amazon Prime, I don't even need to have satellite television because I'm out, I'm out the game at that point. Oh, wow. So there you go. $10 a month and I get, and everything is on there except for pay-per-views, except, except for pay-per-views, I assume. Sign me up. Where do I sign? You know, this is kind of a uh, tertiary issue, but one thing, I, if I could make like a wish uh, in addition, if I could make like a wish 1A kind of thing in addition to this, like where would I want to see them go? One thing I would want to see the UFC do is admit that you lost the battle against the internet. Uh, admit that there's no real point in continuing to be just hard-ass vigilant uh, trying to take down gifts and take down clips, uh, finishes, regardless of what it is, even if it's your pay-per-view, whatever. Because what we've seen is that the UFC has spent years trying to crack down on this stuff, making it harder for people to post gifts, post even just like really lovingly fan-made highlight videos. They, they've spent years cracking down on that stuff. And you know what you haven't managed to do? You have not managed to convince me one single bit that I will not be able to find the finish of last night's pay-per-view on Sunday morning. The, I can the still... finish, man, you can find the whole fight. Right. I mean, but you, you haven't succeeded. You have not done what you set out to do, which was make it so that people had to buy the pay-per-view because it was the only way to find out and actually see the shit that happened. And you spent all this time and money and energy and you, you, I'm sure, have driven some of your fans away or at least made them hate you a little more in and probably prevented the creation of some new fans because they, you know, they're just on Twitter and they're seeing highlights and, and gifts and whatever, and they might just think, all right, this shit looks awesome. When's the next one? I might actually sit down and watch it. Like, you've done all that negative stuff, and you haven't done the one positive thing that you set out to do. You just admit you lost that battle. It can't be won in this age. I feel like we just finished the show on sort of a just saying stuff. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Stick around with us till next week. We'll tell you everything that happened at Jeremy Stevens versus Josh Emmett, and then we will look ahead to UFC 222, Cyborg versus Kunitskaya. Hey, if you want to email the podcast, get your, get your email on a future show, go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says, Email the Podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday to tell you what happened on all the days that we weren't recording the podcast. It's short. We would like to tell you it's funny, it's informative. If you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Fun presidential facts. Oh, shit, I got, I got another one here. Hold on. Is yours about uh, Lyndon Johnson discussing, discussing with his top advisors how uh, then-presidential candidate Richard Nixon had basically committed treason? No. Because that's on tape. You can hear it in the Ken Burns uh, documentary, Vietnam. Oh, yeah, I have that on my DVR. Ben, the first president born in the U.S. 